From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. This week, rather than an article from our back catalogue, we bring you the audio from last night's Q&A event held at Dublin Sugar Club. The panel, hosted by Owen McDevitt of Second Captains, featured Blizzard editor Jonathan Wilson alongside Philippe Clare and Ian McIntosh. We'll be hosting a similar event at Edinburgh's Signet Library on the 25th of May. For more information and for tickets, head to theblizzard.co.uk slash events. But now, over to Owen McDevitt. Thank you. Thanks very much, folks. You're all very welcome to the Sugar Club tonight. I'm Owen McDevitt from Second Captains. Don't worry, I'm not here to thank you. I'm not here to badger you about becoming a, a World Service member or anything like that. Tonight is all about these wonderful gentlemen here from the Blizzard. This is the fourth time, I think, that you've been over at this stage. And if previous experience is anything to go by, I think you lot here will have plenty of questions to ask. So we'll pop a couple of microphones around a little bit later on. I will just ask you to maybe remain sober enough to keep the length of those questions under 30 minutes or so per question. It can get a little bit wild towards what, what the end of the What about the answers? Well, yeah, that'll be probably an hour each. And if you're too shy to get yourself in front of a microphone, we have got a Twitter hashtag going, which is hashtag Blizzard Dub. That's Blizzard without the vowels. I see a lot of the blank faces there. Blizzard without the vowels is B-L-Z-Z or D and then dub. But you can just tweet at Blizzard and Gareth here is going to help us out reading some of those out as we're, uh, as we're progressing. Is everyone ready for our amazing panel? Yeah. Let's do it. We've got a full-time football manager addict and sometime writer about football <laughs> for ESPN, <laughs> Ian McIntosh, a man who produces quality football books at the same rate as Sergio Ramos picks up red cards, Jonathan Wilson, and a saboteur who refuses to be crushed, France football's Philippe Auclair. We might as well start with the most recent uh, story over the weekend, Jonathan, and that was Leo Messi's heroics in the Classico. Was, is that a contender for his greatest moment, do you think? Yeah, it's definitely up there. I mean, I, I think the fact that Real Madrid clearly had such a, uh, an obvious policy of trying to kick him out of the game. And then yeah, the first goal was a classic Messi goal, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the skill, the finish, the speed of the finish. But then to, to come up with that finish... Nine seconds, I think, from the end of the allotted two minutes. Uh, you have intelligence to make that, you know, not to run towards the goal, but to run away from the goal, to pull himself into space. Um, and, I mean, I guess it slightly depends on what happens next. If if Barca somehow drop points against Osasuna at the weekend and Real Madrid beat Deportivo, then it doesn't really matter. But if, if Barca go on to, to win the league, then, then yeah, it's definitely a contender for his greatest moment. And the celebration, Philippe. This is a Leo Messi we're seeing a bit this season that we mightn't have seen before. So demonstrative and almost provocative. Yeah, that's um, something very unusual, actually, because you would think, and talking to people who have had the chance to meet him and spend some time with him, he tends to be a kind, of, kind of shy, doesn't seem to have much of a hinterland, and you would imagine that this is the kind of celebration that would have been rehearsed, but obviously it never was rehearsed. It was just a, I mean, it's an extraordinary image, isn't it? But it's both spontaneous and iconic, um, which is not something that goes for the way people celebrate their goals these days, which is, tends to be a little bit too rehearsed. I mean, that's, and for once you thought, yeah, actually you've got an absolute right to do that and show that shirt with your name on it. Which is a bit like Tardelli, you know, rushing back when he scored and screaming, Tardelli, Tardelli, 
in that World Cup game. But um, he seems to, uh, I don't know, has it, has it changed, do you think, as a, as a person as well as a footballer? I think he has changed, yeah. Um, I mean, he was... I, mean, I think that point you make about not having a hinterland is absolutely true. That um, if you talk to his dad, uh, Messi as a kid was like, as it, I mean, as a very young kid, sort of two, three year old, was they were very worried about how introverted he was. That his brothers would be out playing for. They went to his grandmother's every weekend for for dinner, um, and the, the brothers would be out playing football in the street. Messi would just be inside with with his um, like picture cards, and then one day, age four, he went out in the street, and the brothers were sort of like shit, he's really good. And literally the first time he played, but he never shown any interest in it before that. And then, I don't know if it's maybe because of him leaving Argentina when he did, but he, he almost seemed to get... Um, it's almost like he didn't quite grow up. So, you know, his favourite favorite food, his two favourite foods are cheese and tomato pizza and uh, milanesas, which are... Uh, very familiar Argentinian food, very common food in Argentina, with like breaded steak with tomato and cheese. So again, it's sort of like, it's the food your mum gives you when you're like five or six years old. And his favourite drink is, is Sprite. So you know, there he is, you know, immensely rich, one of the most sophisticated footballers ever been, going home to a cheese and tomato pizza. And he's basically ordering off a kid's menu. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think that's, that's indicative of, of, uh, of his mentality, I think. You know, and it, it's, it's until very recently, I think his his only real off-field activity was was playing on the PlayStation. So his football either on the pitch or on the on the screen. But I do think recently mm. there has been a slight change. I think all the tattoos, I think growing the beard, like dying of the hair, there's definitely more awareness of, of image. Uh, and I think he's sort of. I think there's an element of conflict coming through as well. I think he's grown frustrated certainly with the Argentinian national team, with the Argentinian Football Association, all of many, many, many problems there. Um, I think he certainly will be very frustrated about having to play a friendly in Singapore in the summer. Um, that's, I mean, those issues are probably uh, a distraction too far. But, but yeah, I, I think he is asserting himself. And I think there was sort of a year or two when that was quite an uncomfortable process. I think the dying of a hair the suddenly getting loads of tattoos. I think that was almost you know, his rebellious teenage years coming 10, 12 years too late. <laughs> just, I, um, just one quick thing. You know, you're talking about this dietary habit. Um, obviously, you know, him and Cristiano Ronaldo have, have, have won every single Ballon d'Or there has been you know, in competition for the last 10 years. And um, my magazine, France Football, who the Ballon d'Or, and a couple of my friends go and deliver the actual thing in the player's home. Now, when we did that with Cristiano Ronaldo, he prepared an absolutely splendid dinner with Cristal Brodera champagne. When that's true, and when we did that for Lionel Messi, Ronaldo himself prepared the dinner, or <laughs> it, it was, was mummy. <laughs> it was mummy, and uh, also um, his um, uh, brother-in-law, who had divorced his sister, but was still the cook in the house. I don't. <laughs> I know. Messi. Lionel Messi. Uh, really, really went to town, and it was my friend Thierry Marchand sat down in his, his, his um, sitting room, and Messi brought Sprite and two huge bags of crisps. That's what that's what he did. <laughs> so I think <laughs> this is it. You've got the you know this this kind of extraordinary dichotomy um, between the two there. 
I, I actually spent a lot of time with Messi in 2006. Um, too much time, actually. Um, it was in a, in a previous job. I worked for a company called Icons.com, which does those shirt signings. And I was the one who had to, you know, hold the shirt and let him sign it. But he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish. And so it was pretty awkward, to be honest. It was just about an hour of me holding out laundry. While he sort of nodded Which and weirdly smiled. was his celebration on Sunday. So. <laughs> <laughs> My God, what have I done? <laughs> a, a certain Irish pundit after the Juventus game was writing the eulogies. <laughs> I think we know who we're talking about for this Barcelona team and this great player, Leo Messi. A little premature to be writing Messi off? Yeah, I think on, I think on balance, yeah. It's not like he's going to suddenly go shit, is it? Like, like, oh, no, he's lost that half a yard of pace. He's, he's just a muggle all of a sudden. <laughs> I, I, I think he's probably going to be all right. What actually will happen when, that, when himself and Ronaldo shuffle off, even if it's in five years' time? He'll, he'll slot back and be a centre-back. <laughs> Ball-playing centre-back. Play till 40. Yeah. Um, very good question, uh, because I asked you to ask it. Exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I haven't got any original questions, to be honest. They're so all teed up by Philippe. <laughs> Um, to be honest, I, I, as far as the game goes, um, the actual play, um, I have no idea. But what is going to happen certainly is that I think people in, in football, we have to rethink of a way to sell it. And you ask yourself the question, how much of their careers do, we, do they own to the fact that football became a commodity and that a footballer could, became, could become a kind of global icon as both of Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldo and Messi have been? But also, what you do when they're no longer there. And there's clearly... Well, I don't think... Can you see anybody who is ready to step in those shoes? Sam Klukas. (laughs) The ginger Carlton Palmer. (laughs) (laughs) Growing in strength as we speak. But I I think... I think it'd be unrealistic to expect anybody else at their level. I mean, in the whole history of football, how many players have been that good... I think in terms of being that good and being marketed that well, maybe four of them. So Messi, Ronaldo, Pele, Maradona. Mm-hmm. I, I think there have been other players who you can say were, of a, in terms of their ability, in terms of their impact on the teams they played for. So people like Pushkas, people like Cruyff, people like De Stefano. You, you could say that in terms of pure ability, we're probably not that far off. If you know. So you'd probably say maybe 10 in total. Having two together, having a rivalry like that, is utterly unprecedented. There's never been anything like that before. And clearly the two have driven each other on. Um, and I think you do see that dynamic quite often. So, for instance, um, yeah, the, the, the great quirk that the two greatest goalkeepers in African history yeah. were born within an hour's drive of each other, within three years of each other, uh, Thomas Nkono and Joseph Antoine Bell. And both of them, I mean, they ended up hating each other um, they both sort of laugh about each other now. Um, they fell out at every major tournament they went to, but they both acknowledge that without the other, they would never have been as great because they spent their entire waking lives thinking, how do I train better to make myself better than him? Um, so yeah, I, I think they've driven each other to greater and greater heights, but this, is, this has never happened before. You've never had two players that good playing in the same it, league it, at the same time. It's like having Federer and Nadal, isn't it? Or Borg and McEnroe, but over 10 years in a team sport. I, for one, can't wait for them to retire. I'm I'm sort of, you know, it's been very entertaining, blessed are we to be born in their age and so on and so forth. 
But every time you write something about Messi stroke Ronaldo or both, if you are even slightly critical of one or the other, you invoke this furious Twitter tirade from frantic 14-year-old bastards <laughs> breaking from furious masturbation sessions just to throw, throw abuse down the internet at you because you said Ronaldo was a little bit off his, off his game. Um, so no, the sooner they're gone, the better, really. Which one is your, which one is your favourite, Ian? I would say I like them uh, Messi easily. I've but always preferred him. By the way, I should uh, state that somebody has just walked in with a cheese and tomato pizza uh, directly by us, as if to tease us after talking about all this food. <laughs> who, who is going to replace these guys? And, and Well, nobody is the answer, I suppose, but who's, who, who will be the, the two closest to them in two or three years' well, time? Well, I think Neymar's the furthest Neymar, up yes. the ladder. Um, and I think some of his performances, particularly uh, in the Champions League this season, uh, yeah, have, have been of that level. Um, and I think what's interesting as well is what happens to, to Barcelona as this, I mean, I, I think the point about Messi fading is not yet quite true. The point about Barcelona fading is, is absolutely true. That they, they haven't been anything like as good this season as they were even two seasons ago. And that was nowhere near what they were in their Guardiola pomp. But I think, um, you know, in, in the past, when a team, when a generation like that came to an end, so you can be a very rich team, you can buy great players. But the greatest of all teams are those where you have a core of four or five, maybe more, who've come through your, your youth setup. They've grown up together. And so you think of the great Ajax of the early 70s, you think of the great Celtic of the late 60s. You know, the teams where the players, have, because they've played with each other from the age of 9, 10, 11, they, they do know that fraction of a second earlier what each of them is going to do. That, that sense of unity is much stronger. And that, that's, for me, why the Barca of Guardiola is the greatest team of my lifetime. Uh, because they had that extra element. And that generation, Xavi has gone. Um, Iniesta is clearly fading. Um, Busquets. Yeah, Busquets is clearly fading. Dani Alves, who okay, came along slightly later, has, has been sold. You know, it's, it's not the side that it was. In the past, you know, what, happened, what happened to Ajax in, in the 70s is they, they disappeared. They went away for... Yeah, 20 years till Van Gaal resurrected them. That won't happen with these And that won't teams, happen. Yeah. And that can't happen in the modern age. The super clubs have that safety net. And you, you had Rory Smith on, on, on Second Captains uh, talking about the piece he's written in the New York Times. And the point he made, I think, is absolutely valid that there are a certain small group of teams who have become too big to fail in the modern economic environment. And I guess, in some ways, the stability is is good for the marketing of the game, but it does take some of the fun away. And that, that I think, is a, is a shame. And also, it, it takes the places that growing teams could, uh, you know, could displace. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's actually just, uh, really annoys me, this, because I can see that happening with Monaco, which has the potential of becoming uh, a truly wonderful team at the, at the European level. And that reminds me of the um, Ajax 95-96 team, which I was going through the, the names the other day. I thought, this, if this team had kept together, heavens above, we would be talking about them as we are talking about the Ajax of the 1970s. And again, it was an organic growth. I think nine of the 11 players had come through the ranks at Ajax. At the and time. the great thing with that was that Van Gaal had been the youth coordinator before he became coach. It was totally Van Gaal's team. Whatever you may think of Van Gaal now, you know, his, sort of, his trouble time at United... What he did at Ajax late 80s, early 90s is extraordinary. 
We, we had the same thing at South End, you know. <laughs> First we lost Brett Angel, and then Stan Collymore, then Jason Lee, you know, the giants of our era. Does anyone want to address the Sergio Ramos issue? <laughs> Is he a little bit indulged at that club? 22 red cards? Does anyone ever take him aside and... Say, we like the 69 goals or whatever it is, but maybe not so much the 22 red cards. I mean, presumably not. I mean, he's not listening. <laughs> I, I, I mean, he is a great player and he is a great leader and his capacity to score goals when, when they need it um, has been vital even from getting to the position they're in now of being level at the top, having played the game fewer. Um, I mean, you know, the, the extraordinary stat that Real Madrid have now gone behind in nine of the last 14 games... And of those, they've only lost three, one of which was a Bayern Munich game, which, of course, they then went on to win an extra time. Well, you could say that about Gareth McAuley and West Brom, too. Yeah. I mean, McAuley's disciplinary record is better as well. So, uh, but, Se- I mean, that... that second that, top goal scorer. It wasn't just the foul on, uh, on Sunday. It was the reaction afterwards. You know, how you can think that, that that was in any way a controversial red card. But even the fanboys masturbating in Bangalore weren't saying that was a... <laughs> Is that the start of a limerick? Sounds a bit like it. Philippe has fed me another question here. Unfortunately, it just says one word, timekeeping. So one of you will have to explain what that is. In relation oh, no, to we the were, We're talking about this because we were, we were wondering about where did the uh, time added on oh, just the go? Two, just the two minutes. This is insane. Yeah, I mean, there was clearly more than two minutes even before the goal. Okay, the goal came like nine seconds before the end of the two minutes and nothing was added on. But... Two minutes? You, know, you never get two minutes in the Premier League. You very rarely get three. It's normally four or five. Um, it's all very arbitrary anyway, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean I, I, I just, I mean, I don't like the fact that you know, it, it's supposed to be a minimum of whatever the fourth official puts up. And yet, I would say 80% of the time, it's within five or ten seconds of that. The referees sort of let the ball go out of play or they, they wait till there's not a dangerous situation because nobody wants to do a Clive Thomas Clive Thomas being the Welsh referee who famously disallowed his eco-head against Sweden in the 1974 World Cup as it was crossing the line. Um, because, I mean, because the time was up and Clive Thomas said the time was up and Clive rules Thomas rules. was a very precise, pernickety man. Um, but yeah, I, 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 and so we were discussing this morning on Twitter, would it be worth actually just, just radically changing this. It's been two halves of 45 minutes since the 1863 laws of football. But maybe what we say is, look, we now have the capacity to have somebody off the pitch timing it. Maybe you still keep two halves of 45 minutes at Sunday league level. But at professional level, just have somebody off the pitch and you have two halves of half an hour and you stop the clock every time the ball goes out of play. And you do away with, with time wasting at a stroke. And maybe teams would find other ways to exploit it, but you deal with that, you cross that bridge when you come to it. I think with, with any potential rule change, you always have to ask yourself, what would Sam Allardyce do here? Because <laughs> he's always the quickest one. When they had that little um, tweak to the offside law in 2005, he was the first one getting everyone out on the training pitch. Right, that's right, that's right. I think this would actually kill him. Because it's hard to imagine, like, obviously the way to run the clock down would be to keep possession with a series of neat short passes, but <laughs> he's fucked. But, <laughs> but I mean, th- that, that point is actually, that relates to what went wrong at Liverpool in the 90s. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why Brian Clough's final season of Forest ended in relegation, one of the reasons why Liverpool 
haven't won the league since uh, 1990, is that they they were teams who passed the ball out from the back. If they got under pressure, just knock it back to the keeper. Back pass law comes in. You can't do that. You can't waste time. You can't run the clock down. Oh, we've all seen this wonderful Graham Sooners pass. Yeah. Uh, which is, know, I think, from... Uh, within, his, within the opposition half, it must be 65 Absolutely, yards, when Liverpool yeah. is attacking and Sooners gets the ball and turns towards his goal and shoves it back to the keeper. So are you and a fan of Jonathan's hey. idea? What that hammered was your know, Forest weren't fit enough and they got found out because the ball was in play more because of the back pass law, that, that you didn't have a goalkeeper's hanging on to the ball, roll it to the full-back, get it back, hang on to the ball, roll it to the full-back, get it back. So I, I think at least it's worth experimenting. But I'm not saying bring it in the Premier League next season, but maybe you try it out in, I don't know, the, the Dutch third division or whatever, and, and see what happens. But what a time that was to be alive. I see, like, there's a few people who probably remember that. There was not a goalkeeper alive in 1992 who could do more than three keepy-ups. It was yeah. every time. Edwin van der Sar. In England. <laughs> every time the ball came back to the goalkeeper, it was like a shark's fin. Just panic absolutely everywhere. I'd give anything to go back to that era. We do a quick straw poll in here. How many people are a fan of Jonathan's idea of just two 30-minute halves? We've got a... Uh, I'd say probably about... Well, how many people aren't a fan of that? Uh, sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> no, I think if out. you've learned anything over the last two years, that polls mean nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Gareth, anything from Twitter you want to print or do? Oh, you haven't got a microphone at the moment. We can do that in a few minutes' time. So we'll ask uh, if anyone else wants to ask a few questions, we will do a little bit of a Q&A before the end of the first half here as well. Might as well talk about the biggest uh, domestic issue in, in English football, Chelsea's defeat by uh, defeat of Spurs, I should say. Do you buy into the idea that this will do psychological damage to Tottenham's title bid and maybe even further, further along? No. Not no. <laughs> um, everyone was saying seven days ago that Chelsea would be psychologically damaged by being beaten by Manchester United. And they seem to have shrugged that one off all right. I think Tottenham are... A, I mean, I know your, your colleague, Ken Early, is very keen on the fact that Spurs are better than Chelsea. I think they're very, very close. Um, and I, I know there's this thing about them being Spursy, And, you know, it's a thing with, with solid foundations that stretch back the better part of 50 years. But I think they are growing up now. They're growing up together, as we've been talking about other teams who've grown up together. They're getting stronger. I, I still don't think they'll win the title... Um, there's, there's too much to do now. Um, but I don't think it's going to tip them over the edge and they'll end up finishing third or anything. Philippe? I was quite struck when we were in the mixed zone after the game at Wembley and we, we talked to a, a number of players from, from both teams how it was clear that this game meant almost as much for the league than it meant to be in the final of the FA Cup or not. And it's something that we heard from, from Hugo Loris who said he didn't know which kind of impact. It was off the record, by the way, so please don't put that on uh, Thank you very much. Um, he didn't know the, what impact it would have on, on the group of players. They were very down. On the other hand, all the uh, Chelsea players we talked to, and I, I talked to Courtois, I talked to Eden Hazard and Golo Kante, and the three of them, even Golo Kante, who barely says three words in interviews, all said... We needed that one. We needed that one after what happened against Manchester United. We've always believed in ourselves. We needed to have the proof to basically uh, sustain this belief in ourselves. And they had it in the most uh, fitting way possible, as in they were actually battered for part of the second half and they still won 4-2. There's also this, this strange thing with, with Tottenham. Just over the last few days, during the game, um, before the game, everyone was saying, well, Tottenham are clearly a very good team, but they need to win a trophy now. It's Tottenham. 
We live in a world where Tottenham are in their second genuine title challenge. You only have to go back about five or six years and people would have laughed at you openly in the street for suggesting that such a thing could be possible. It's extraordinary that they've made so much progress in such a short space of time. And relatively speaking, in comparison to you know, your Man Cities and that, they haven't actually spent that much money in doing it. They're them being up there. Musa Sissoko aside, which I still don't entirely understand. Um, they, they're... I forgot my original point. What was it? Well, that's okay. It's just that maybe... It sounded uh, good, Tottenham, sh- Tottenham shouldn't expect to be winning trophies. Like, that's the idea. That well, they have, so to, have so much, to win a trophy. Not so much now. that they shouldn't be expecting to, to win trophies. Just that what they are doing is very, very good. A little slip up here, not winning the title here. It's not a disaster. Gareth? On. There we go. Uh, this is a question from Twitter from uh, Tyler Hall. Uh, is football still fun? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean by, by still. If you're a Sutherland fan, it really hasn't been fun since about <laughs> 937. Um, I, I, th- I think what said, that he, he doesn't like football anymore, but he still loves it. I think that probably sums up... Yeah. I mean, there's times... I, I think anything... Where you do it for a job, you get days when you can't really be bothered with it, let's be honest. You, know, you go along to a League Cup game between Wolves and Darlington to speak of one particular low. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, an unexpectedly cold night in early September that I was not prepared for. Um, so you get bad days, and you get days, or you get times when you think, God, I cannot write another word on this. I, I mean, I wish Wenger would either win something meaningful or oh, goodness sake, yes, please. disappear. <laughs> I just, nothing personal against him, but I just cannot bear we to write another word. Out. I don't think the question was, is football journalism fun, Jonathan? I think it was... <laughs> <laughs> but, but don't stop him now, he's in his flow. But then, yeah, to, to, to bring that back round, there have been occasions over the last sort of four or five years... When, so, for instance, in 2013, I walked across Corsica from the east coast to the west, uh, which is beautiful. I, I would recommend it. And uh, no phone coverage. Yeah. So I, I get into a Jaxio, and I, I arrived on a Saturday morning, and French TV shows three Premier League games back-to-back. And those, I just lay on the bed in the hotel room, watch those three games back-to-back, and it was fantastic. And, I, I, you yeah, know... So I, I am addicted to the thing, whether I like it or not. Is yeah. football funny? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of things I don't like about it. There's far too much money. Um, it's long since been detached from any kind of realism. It, the footballers may as well live on the moon for all they have in common with anyone who actually pays to watch football. Um, there are murky, murky things going on not very far beneath the surface. But then is there any one of us who didn't watch Spurs-Chelsea the other day and fill their buttocks creeping forward to the edge of the seat and a strange smile spreading. It was uh, underneath all of the tiresome bullshit. Football's still awesome. Philippe? Yeah, I would en- entirely agree with, with Ian, actually. And uh, you do need those. I mean, I'm uh, sorry, we can only talk from our own experience and we, we're football fans, but we're also football journalists and football writers. And a lot of it is... Um, it's a bit like those stages on the Tour de France where for 200 kilometers, bloody hell, nothing happens. You know that the guys have gone up on, in front and the fifth kilometer, they're going to be called back. But in the last climb, something happens and the sprint is fantastic. So it's a bit like that for us, in our, I think, in our reporting lives. And that's the word fern is exactly the one I used, I think, when I talked about that semi-final between 
uh, Chelsea and Spurs. And um, I also think that we, we tend to be over cynical, that an awful lot of people who are actually in football are people who are in football for the fun. I get the impression when we talk to um, Antonio Conte and Mauricio Pochettino that we are talking with people who are genuine football fans. They have fun. When you talk to their players, they have fun. And when you see them on the pitch, they look like they're having fun. And as a result, we're all having fun. So the answer is a massive yes. <laughs> so having fun is one of the reasons Conte has the team firing at the moment, John. How impressive. He's still talking about this being a team in transition, even after making it into an FA Cup final and being within touching distance of actually winning the league. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the concern for Chelsea, or, or you know, the thing that backs up the point about them you know, not being anything like it, the, the, what he would see as being a finished article, is that that game against United, when Courtois not there, when Alonso's not there, they, I know they had the, the issue of sickness, but they looked so diminished, two players being out. And so you do wonder what would have happened had they had a European campaign, had they had to rotate more. I think the fact that despite, you know, Diego Costa clearly hasn't been in great form the last month or so, and yet Pachuay hasn't come in until um, Saturday, I think that's indicative that Conte is not entirely convinced that Pachuay is a, is a backup. I think they are very, very reliant on Azar for creativity that, uh, I don't know what it is now, but certainly before Saturday, Azar had set up 66 chances for them, and the next highest was 41. So they are... I mean, I guess that happens if you have a player of Azar's quality, but I think maybe they're slightly too reliant on him. Uh, what would happen if Kante got injured? I mean, that doesn't seem possible, but <laughs> it might. Um, so I, th I think there are certain questions there. And I think, actually, it's not even just about the toll on the players, this, this issue not playing in Europe. There was a... It was a really good piece Gabriele Marcotti wrote having spent some time with Carlo Ancelotti earlier in the season. And it, it, they, they worked out that between the beginning of the Bundesliga season and the beginning of the winter break, Ancelotti had had a total of 73 hours on the training pitch, which is nothing. Nothing. Now, that's in the Bundesliga where you only have one cup competition and where you only have um, 18 teams in the league. So you're only playing... Uh, 34 games, not 38. So there's a bit more, there's a bit more give in the calendar there. So if you if you think about your your weekly schedule, if you're Chelsea, you play a game on the Saturday. On the Sunday, you have a recovery session. You train on Monday, you train on Tuesday, you train on Wednesday, you train on Thursday. You have Friday off. You play a game on Saturday. So you've had four days of proper hard work on the training pitch, which is what's given Conte mm. the time to um, get the shape right, to, to get them playing, you know, practicing these sort of pre-programmed moves, something that Azar was talking about, the difference between Conte and Mourinho, that the, the Conte has them sort of, you know, if, if the left-back has the ball and you're breaking away, this is what you do, and you learn two or three ways of doing that, and then you adapt that to a game situation, almost like a moving chess or something. Now, if you were playing a Champions League game on the Wednesday, you play the game on the Saturday, Sunday recovery, Monday train, Tuesday you're travelling to the game, to the European game, or you're certainly not doing a hard session. The Wednesday you have the game, the Thursday you have recovery, the Friday you're preparing for the game on the Saturday. So you get one day, not four. So playing two games a week actually reduces by you know, four, a factor of four the amount of proper training time you have. 
So I think that is a huge issue. And I think there is, you know, if you, Chelsea's probably going to win the league this season, not in Europe. Leicester won the league last season, not in Europe. When Liverpool and the Brendan Rodgers came closer than we ever thought possible to win the league, no Europe. So you almost get a sense that whichever of the big six doesn't qualify for hmm. the Champions League next season, I, I mean, I suppose they might take the Europa League seriously, but they actually have a huge advantage. If one of those big six can finish seventh, Arsenal, um, <laughs> it, it, it could be a huge boost to them. I think you can take Arsenal out of the equation of winning the title, though. But if they had no Europe, you, you can't remember what it was like when Arsenal had no Europe. Maybe that's what they need. The Go back to the glory days of Bruce Rios. 95, 96. <laughs> no, but the, the, there's one thing, just um, uh, uh, using this as a, as a prop in, in a way... Um, when you see a club that was in Europe, that is Manchester City, and you see the Manchester City, which had spent time on the training ground with Pep Guardiola at the beginning of the season, 10 first games, 10 wins, right? Then suddenly they go into Europe, they don't have this time on the training ground. And it's not as if, you know, this pre-season, it's not as if you were cooking the perfect dinner and you could um, eat it throughout the season. You've got to constantly be cooking week after week after week. And Guardiola is, has been very, very frustrated not to spend enough time on a training pitch with his players, especially for somebody who is so keen on detail. Um, and you've seen the results. As soon as Europe kicked in, first of all, the injuries as well. Uh, the injuries, and then the time, less time to spend on the training ground, therefore, you know, the performances dip. I think you're forgetting one factor though, Philippe. Brendan Rodgers. Manchester City were unstoppable before Brendan Rodgers got in their way. And I'm only being slightly facetious as well, because every other team had cowered in front of City. Just drop back, fill the gaps, don't let them do any of this fancy stuff of inverted fullbacks. And Brendan Rodgers brought them down. I think we might... We have the remote, the remote control. <laughs> yeah, we might have that as well. Yeah, do we have the microphone ready to go? If anyone wants to ask any questions at this stage, feel free to raise your hand. We've got one just here near the front. Hi everyone, um, this might be of particular interest to Ian if he's a South End fan, but um, I used to live near Leighton Orient back a few years ago and they were doing well, now they're not doing so well, just wondering what happened there firstly and secondly what can clubs do to protect against owners like that? Uh, <coughs> yeah, not doing well, that, uh, we, we might need some stronger words there. They were in 2014 in a penalty shootout, if they'd have won the shootout there'd be a second division club. Um, they did not win the shootout. Barry Hearn sold the club to an Italian madman. Are we allowed to say that? He's mental. What about, and, what um, about Crook? Crook? <laughs> Bastard. Gangster? Um, he went through managers like most people go through. Socks, destroyed any spirit at the club. At one point, sort of imprisoned the players in a remote B&B &B and wouldn't let them go home. Um, did he kick his assistant manager up the bottom on the pitch as well? He got a ban for that. Um, all of which is very amusing. What isn't amusing is that they are disintegrating as they go down. Um, they were relegated last week, but they're now in a position where for the second month in a row, no one at the club's going to get paid. Um, and while sympathy isn't usually forthcoming towards footballers, these are guys who aren't earning much more than four or 500 quid a week, probably. Um, and it's also all the staff at the club some of whom are having to move out of houses and move in with friends. Um, and, yeah, what, what, what is the Football League doing? Very little, it appears. Um, and uh, Tony Evans has made the point repeatedly, both for the Times and for the Standard, that football clubs should 
sort of have a listed building status where there is enough red tape laid down that you can't mess them up. I think that would definitely be... I'm, I'm amazed that the EFL hasn't even set up some kind of board, some committee, some kick-it-into-the-long-grass bollocks where they have a uh, clubs getting absolutely bummed, czar kind of position set up for someone. Um, it doesn't seem like they care very much and it is beginning to give the impression that they're just waiting for Orient to go down so that they're just out of their jurisdiction. It's pretty disgraceful on all sides. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a couple of things to be... Yeah, to, to add to that, one is that they, they have this tax bill to be paid, I think, by the end of June. Um, so they, they had a court hearing which put that back by four months, which is why they're still surviving now. Uh, but if that isn't paid, then, then they presumably would go bankrupt. And if you're going bankrupt while getting relegated out of the league, it's pretty hard to see a way back. The second thing is, I can understand why sympathy might be in short supply if you've massively overspent on players, if you've... <laughs> You know, taking crazy risks in the transfer market if you've overpaid the players. That's not the case here. This is just an owner who's turned the tap off. And that is, is why I think this is a very, you know, it's a very cold, calculating thing that, that the owner's doing. And that's why I think this is very different. We've got a piece in the, in the next Blizzard, one will be out in June, by Luke Edwards, who's a very good journalist for The Telegraph, based in the North East, but he's a late Orient fan. And it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a piece where you sort of, you read it and you get a lump in your throat reading it. So... I think it's probably one we'll put on the website because it's, it's obviously of kind of wider concern. But buy the issue, please. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is, I mean, the thing with what's happening with, with the O's, I mean, one thing which is remarkable has been the response of other London clubs. And I should say not London clubs because London clubs have done fuck all. But it's about the fans of other London clubs. Um, I was quite struck when I was at White Hart Lane uh, the other day, and I saw all the volunteers from uh, Leighton Orient going around with, uh, you know, their buckets trying to collect money. They got a lot from. It was against Bournemouth. I mean, both from Spurs fans and Bournemouth fans. I think Charlton fans as well have. Uh, have, have and, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic. I'm more of a sort of half full kind of glass kind of person, but I hope they can follow a model like Pompey, and uh, they have a plan. They want to buy the club, uh, supporters trust. The fans will help them to do that. They don't quite have the same reach that, that Portsmouth has, which is a much bigger club. But maybe the best thing which can happen to them is um, liquidation and rebirth, and um, this time with a proper structure. Not, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the danger with that, though, I mean, I, I, I kind of broadly agree. The danger is if you're a club in London and you don't own the ground, you're relying on. And Barry Hearn, I think, would do the right thing and not sell the ground for flats. But and with the Olympic Stadium being given to... To West Ham, yeah. yes. But uh, you know, there is a danger. As a, you know, if you're a London club who loses your ground... So Vince, we've, we've an instance with um, a Kingstonian. Uh, now, Kingstonian allowed AFC Wimbledon to use their ground, Kingsmeadow, uh, when AFC Wimbledon reformed. Uh, AFC Wimbledon quickly became a wealthier club than Kingstonian... Uh, they, they essentially took on the lease and were leasing it out to, uh, to Kingstonian. As AFC Wimbledon are now moving back into Wimbledon, which you, ev you know, everybody said, oh, great thing, brilliant thing. What they've done is to sell the leasehold to Chelsea. Chelsea want their women's team to play at Kings Meadow, and they're refusing to lease the ground to Kingstonian. So Kingstonian are now having to play in Leatherhead next season, which is you know, miles out of town. Okay, it's a non-league club, but still... 
you know, it shows the difficulty, particularly in London, of just finding somewhere to play. And that's the huge danger for Leighton Orient. It's not, it's not a question of just reform and go again. It's reforming and make sure you don't lose that ground because you will not be able to buy a new stadium in London. Yeah, great question. Uh, who's next? Anybody else like to throw in this? Pick a couple sort of right in the middle here. Oh, yeah. um, I just uh, was wondering actually about, uh, we were talking about Messi and Argentina earlier. And first of all, whether you would agree with the idea that they've kind of underachieved at an international level maybe for the last 20-ish years, I guess since I've been really watching uh, international football, what the reasons are behind that and if you see there's likely to be any change in, in, in that over the next few years. Well, I can, I can recommend a very good book on the subject. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called Angels of Dirty Faces. It's out in hardback now. It'll be out in paperback in August, but don't wait. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously they've underperformed. Uh, yeah, they haven't won a, a, a trophy since. Well, they've won two Olympic golds, but they haven't won a, a senior trophy since 1993. Uh, you think of the players they've had in that time. They've won five World Youth Cups in that time. Um, it's an a- astonishing underperformance. The reasons, I, you know, I think, I think there's a huge number of reasons. One has been bad luck. I mean, they've been in four finals in that time, and won none of them. Uh, and I think that start and two of those have been they lost on penalties. So, um, and even the World Cup final, uh, I mean, I, I think Manuel Neuer should have been sent off for the foul on on Higuain. If that had happened, yeah, who, who knows what would happen in the game? So it's it's not that they're not coming close. They, they, there is a sort of slipping up with the final moment. I think the AFA, the the Argentine Football Association, uh, it was run for a long time by Julio Guandona. Um, who I think took, took power in 73, then he died in during the World Cup in 2014. Um, I'm monstrously corrupt. Um, and you know, one of the, the great Conmebol um, grandees. But for all his many, 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 many faults, and let's not forget his legacy was to leave a 30-team top division uh, in which... This is a digression, but I don't know if people know this. This is so unbelievably fucking stupid. <laughs> you, have, you have a 30-team d- top division. Every plays each other once, but you play your closest rival twice. Because the idea is that the one game that makes money is Boca v. River, so you have to put on that game as often as you can. So you might argue, if you're Boca, that, oh, hang on, we're playing River twice, and River are really good, so that's not really fair. Or, equally, if you're River, you might argue that Boca are really good. It's not really fair. But I guess the money counts. But it's not... I mean, that sounds pretty stupid. Um, But I guess if you have an obvious local rival, if if you're racing your local rival Independiente, your ground's literally on the same street in Avicenada, if you're Huracan, your rival's are San Lorenzo, if you're Rosario Central, your rival's are Newell's Old Boys, there are certain obvious rivalries. The problem is, if you come from a small city in the south of the country, you don't have an obvious natural rival. So for teams for whom that was the case, they have a draw at the start of the season to pick your local rival. <laughs> and so in the case of a team from Madel Plata, their local rival is 1,800 miles away <laughs> in Crita del Norte. So that, that's, that's Grandona's legacy, plus all these financial issues. So the AFA have been hopeless. Uh, you know, they... they they have not got a, a system in place that is 
helpful to the Argentine national team playing well. They play ridiculous friendlies in ridiculous parts of the world for money. That money's never reinvested. A small detail. I think there were elections held not that long ago. And there were 55 voters, and they found 57 bulletins no, no, in there the there were boxes. This, this was the, the AFA elections last a year gone October. Uh, there were 75 delegates, 75. and it finished 38 all. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, so the, 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 the response to this, I mean, this, this, this is why the book is 580 pages long. It's kind of... The, the response to this by FIFA is to put in charge a normalisation committee, which in, in English sounds kind of vaguely annoying and bureaucratic. In the context of Argentina, when you put it in Spanish and call it a junta de normalización and think of the 1970s, that has really, really, really sinister connotations. We are going to normalise you. Yeah. We are going to normalise you. Um, well, and the word hunter. Which means I mean, I know who? it just means committee, but still hunter. Um, anyway... Uh, we we ha do now have a uh, uh, an AFA president. He's very much connected to Boca. It may not entirely be coincidence that the president of the country is a former president of Boca. Uh, but what this means is that um, Argentina are now without a manager. That, that Edgardo Bauso was was sacked. It looks like San Paolo is going to get the job when his contract. Well, he's got a clause in his contract that's severe that. They have to pay like, an 8 million euro release clause if he leaves in the first year. So as soon as that's up, he can go for 1.5 million euros. So that'll probably happen in June. Um, but one of the candidates will be Marcelo Gajardo, the, the coach of River, who's done great things there. But he said, no, I'm a river man, I'm not going to work for them. So there's all those problems. Um, there's a more fun... Oh, yeah, and, and Afra just I keep on appointing idiots to be manager. I mean, who, who, why would you appoint Diego Maradona to be manager? I mean, it, it is literally... Banter. <laughs> but it, it's literally an act of blindness. This is a man who, in his entire life up till then, hadn't, had managed three games and lost them all. He'd been banned from management for abusing referees. And you think he's the man to qualify you for... The, I mean, he did actually qualify for the World Cup. But <laughs> only in the most farcical circumstances of bringing a 36-year-old back, I mean, almost literally from the grave in the case of Martin Palermo... Uh, and it, him scoring a goal in torrential rain in in in, uh, in Peru. You're looking at the wrong man, Jonathan. You wrote the book. <laughs> uh, it's in the book. Read, read the book. It's Again, definitely in, right the, in, um, in my previous life in uh, Icons, we did signing sessions with Diego Maradona, and you used to have to go out there for ten days because that was how long you needed to find a window of sobriety. <laughs> he wouldn't get up before like one, two in the afternoon. And then he got the Argentina job. So I'm not sure if he's got the discipline for this. <laughs> we might get one more for the time being. If anyone's, there's one up at the back anyway. Uh, if we don't get to you now, sir, we will get to you at some point. Here's one right here. Yeah, just a quick land, one, lads, there. You were touching on it earlier. Um, and I hate harping on about it, but the Messi, Ronaldo. Do any of you guys think, and particularly to Jonathan, are they comparable? Like, surely Messi's on a different level to Ronaldo in terms of forget about the goals Fury in Bangalore <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but surely it's 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 not even a can, can we get this man's Twitter handle and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and destroy his life <laughs> um, Ronaldo I think is everything a human being can make their body into he is the absolute peak of exercise 
Um, whereas I can't. Whereas Messi, I'm not entirely sure you're, is you're, actually you're human. You're I mean, you've, you've got to think for Cristiano, haven't you? Eh? Well, no, he's a <laughs> he's a magnificent looking human. Yeah, look I think him. he's you, you the high bricks and just bounce straight off. He's, he's probably the first footballer to turn narcissism into a weapon. <laughs> But he is comparable. His, his lads no, he's completely uncomparable. No, 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 not at all. But the, the problem yeah, is that if, <laughs> if... It's a messy question, lads. You need to talk about Messi, not, not the other if, guy. If it turned out like Messi was actually an alien, like millionaire alien who was just here pissing about in his gap year, you wouldn't be that... Su- well, you'd be a bit surprised... <laughs> Like uh, initially, but then you'd be like, "Oh no, actually, that does make Remind sense." Remind me, didn't you interview normal. David Icke, w- uh, you know, once? I, mean, <laughs> I have, I have interviewed David Icke okay, many times. Right, me and okay. him go way back. Yes. I could tell you stories. Jonathan, last one on that. Well, I, I think, you know, the, 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 as time has gone by, the grace of my respect for Ronaldo has grown. I used to think he was just sort of a total prima donna. I could quote you, but I, I <laughs> you can. I've, I've written this. Um, I think but you I said I would never have him in my team at one point. Yeah. I that. Mean <laughs> <laughs> in fairness, that was before Lee Catmull got injured. Probably. <laughs> um, yeah, he's clearly, he's, Ronaldo's clearly a phenomenal player. I think you have to have respect for what he's uh, done, to, to, you know, the, the, the level of discipline, the level of desire and drive to get to where he is. But I still think there's a fundamental selfishness to him that is problematic. And I think any game you're weighing up, might he score your hat-trick having played crap as he did against Bayern Munich on Tuesday, Wednesday, whichever day it was, last week. Uh, But what does that do to the structure of a team? And look at... It's a problem I always have with Real Madrid, that they haven't won the league this is will be five, you know, if they don't win it this season it'll be five seasons without winning a league the richest team in the world can't win the Spanish league in five years they've won it once in nine years I think that's incredible underachievement I know they keep winning the Champions League but the Champions League is sort of you know when I was growing up it was a quest it was a thing that kind of was a distant dream you had to be you hadn't, didn't have to be a good team you had to kind of have the stamina to sort of have three or four cracks at it because things could go wrong now it feels a bit like it's a game of pass the parcel between the richest teams in the world. And if Real Madrid are getting to seven semi-finals in a row, obviously that's a great achievement, but it's also partly because they're so rich they're never going to drop out of that. And this relates to what we were saying before about Barcelona. Even though that great generation is fading, they're still always going to be there or thereabouts. And so even in a bad year, they could win it. You know, when Chelsea won it, that's probably the worst Chelsea team of the last 15 years, but it's the one that wins the Champions League. So the truer test is your domestic league. And Real Madrid's comparative underperformance in the league I think suggests something about the team structure, the coherence of that team is not quite what it should be and I think that probably does go back to Ronaldo and I think Messi, although elements of selfishness have come through in the last couple of years I think he, he can be a disruptive presence I think certainly with Argentina at times he's not been a, a very helpful figure um, I think we look to him for more charisma than he has, that Mascherano is the natural leader of the Argentina team and Messi sort of trots along quietly, that, that's what he does. But in any given circumstance, he instinctively does what's most likely to produce a goal, whether that's going himself, whether that's passing the ball, whatever. And that, I think, for me, sets him on a different level. I think, fundamentally, Cristiano Ronaldo is a preening tit. But on the flip side, he does pay his income tax. 
We've got one more here before we take a quick break. That's from John on Twitter. And he says, if you could teleport, ask guys, if you could teleport back to any decade to watch football in, what decade would it be? I'd like to take issue with the use of the word teleport for, for time travel there. I don't want to go, f- <laughs> I want to go full nerd here. I'd go for the 30s. 30s? Any 1930s. <laughs> which was obviously a great time for humanity. Um, <laughs> strange echoes in those days. Um, but the football was quite good. And I think the, the idea is that I would, I would love to see the team that I think was the best ever produced by my club, which is Arsenal. And to see uh, Ted Drake and all these guys in Herbert Chapman's team, which was a thing of beauty. Would uh, you tell Herbert Chapman to wrap up warm and not go out in the snow? Yes, I would actually (laughs) tell him exactly that. I would say, take take it easy, Herbert. Take it easy. Don't go and watch 13 games. You know, Herbert Chapman, the legendary Arsenal manager, died. He was only 56. He always looks about 80 in the pictures. And he had a cold and he decided he was going to go out in the snow and watched the Arsenal third team playing in Luton, wasn't it? Yep. Whereupon he got pneumonia and died. It's like, the third team? Yes. That's full hipster. On that cheery note, Jonathan? I, well, I mean, I, I'd be tempted to come back with you to watch the great Sunderland team of the 30s, won the league in 36, the cup in 37. I, I, I'd also... Um, there's a, my next book, book we, we could go two. to Vienna together before it, you know, it got a little bit yeah, complicated then. Yeah, Hugo Meisel and... There's, a, there's an incredible generation of Jewish-Hungarian coaches. In fact, one of my theories about football is that any team, was any, any national team was any good at all up to about 1980 was at some point influenced by a Jewish-Hungarian. Because, of course, they all fled in the 1930s. Well, they didn't all flee. That's kind of part of the tragedy. So I, I might go and suggest to some of the ones that didn't flee, go on, lad, get out, you know. Uh, but no, i go back to the 1890s when Sunderland were genuinely a world... You know, Sunderland won the, the first ever Club World Cup. It's often, I don't think people know that. 1893, they won the, the English League title. Did anybody know that? Why are people, why are people laughing? <laughs> it's not Sunderland's fault the rest of the world hadn't caught up. The so World Sunderland, Cup? Sunderland, Tid- tiddlywinks or something. Sunderland won the, the, the English... Wait, okay. <laughs> Sunderland had been banned. They'd been banned from the first two so-called league championships for being too far away... Obviously, different people from the guys who are running the Argentinian Federation these yeah. days. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the titles that Preston have won, actually, the first three seasons, the two titles that Preston won and the one that Everton won, for me, that's some local league in the Northwestern Midlands. That's not a national title. Finally, something allowed in. Don't win in their first season. They do win it the next two seasons. And in 1893, they go up to Edinburgh to play Hearts, the Scottish champions, for the first championship of the world, <laughs> win the game 3 1. Sunderland first ever world club world champions. Not recognised by FIFA, not on the cup. Absolute disgrace. <laughs> All right, well. On that note, we will take a quick break as I need Philippe to replenish my questions for the second half of the show. So we'll be back in a few minutes' time.